Hello, and welcome to FabGab. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics, brought to you by Fab Network. My name is Catherine McKay, and today I'm joined by Nora Hamalainen from the University of Pardubitha in Czech Republic. And Nora has joined me to discuss her paper, which is entitled Contextuality, Bioethics, and the Nature of Philosophy, Reflections on Murdoch, Diamond, Walker, and the Groningen Approach, which appeared in the most recent volume of IJFAB, volume 14, number one. Hi, Nora. Hi. How are you? Good. Nice to be here. Great. Thank you so much for joining me. So I wonder if you could tell us straight off the bat, Nora, what's the sort of summary of this paper? Um, I think the paper does several small things uh, in different directions. One, uh, the central, central aim is to dispel a simplified notion of philosophy in bioethics. Philosophy isn't uh, the top-down theoretical endeavor as that some uh, people like, for instance, Barry Hoffmaster have recently taken it to be. So philosophy can be many things, uh, and philo- moral philosophy can be many things, and moral philosophy in bioethics can be many things. Um, and, and to sort of prove, prove that point, I, I here bring together two strands of ground-up work in, in ethics uh, and bioethics. Um, one strand um, centered on the work of Iris Murdoch and Cora Diamond, uh, and one uh, centered on, on the bioethical work of um, Margaret Urban Walker, Hilda Lindemann, and uh, Marianne Verkerk, which I call here and the Groningen approach, <laughs> uh, because it's sort of my central material here, is, is an anthology that they did together. That's more than 10 years ago, but I think it's still a very valuable, valuable collection. I and mean, it sort of points to very interesting directions in, in uh, bioethics and also uh, di- directions in ethics more generally, what mm-hmm. moral philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I also sort of wanted to explore the theoretical and practical implications of the kind of work they suggest, because it's um, the direction these um, two strands of work point to uh, is a kind of enabling myutic work on our ethical points of departure, sort of to understand where we stand and to move on, move on from there. Uh, so I, I think they have much, much in common, but also things that we can sort of um, learn from them. Yeah. And something that I really took from reading the paper was, well, I guess one thing first off was that um, perhaps Hoffmaster was painting with a very broad brush and maybe not taking into account the number of people who'd been working on the sort of contextual ethic that he was saying that we needed more of. And I thought you did a good job of highlighting how in your paper, actually, a lot of that was going on already, but that it nonetheless remains a pretty good critique of a version of philosophy, I suppose. And also that there's a real advantage in having that kind of ethical approach, that kind of what, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call it the contextual approach. Um, but maybe also you could call it like you do the ground up approach or yeah, something like that, the kind of grassroots approach. I took those two things away from your paper thinking um, yeah, there's a lot of room here to do a lot more work in that level that doesn't necessarily have to become empirical ethics. Is that a, a fair way of phrasing some of your points? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's why I what I wanted to you to take home. So I'm very happy. 
<laughs> Great. So I wondered, was this something that you'd been um, working on or thinking about for a while? I think um, Barry Hoffmaster has been writing about this kind of higher level reflection on the process of bioethics for a little while. So I wondered, what was your motivation in writing this particular paper? So I have a long-term engagement in in the work of Iris Murdoch and Cora Diamond, and I think I've engaged those bodies of work because I, I, uh, I because they they brought a kind of critical voice into um, into moral philosophy, Anglophone moral philosophy in the latter half of of the 20th century. That's been really central for shaping my understanding of moral philosophy because moral philosophy was very much for a long time. Uh, defined by a very sort of top-down theoretical approach where, where the, the aim is to formulate a theory and the idea that the sort of the systematicity and integrity of the theory sort of somehow sort of makes it normatively and practically more apt. So, so you, you need to work in a way that moves out all the roughness, uh, all the rough edges, all the complications of, of ordinary life. And, and I think Di- Murdoch and Diamond are two philosophers who for me have always sort of re- represented an insistence on um, taking that roughness seriously and taking the complexity and multiplicity of moral situations very seriously. And of course, there are many others. And, and this, this is a kind of work that you may find in many sort of woman philosophers of the uh, latter half of the 20th century and also features that you find in virtue ethics more than perhaps in Kantian ethics or, or utilitarianism. These are, of course, generalizations. But um, but I've been struggling to find, I think, for a long time, uh, ways of approaching ethics that I think are more sort of um, satisfactory and also sort of to, to explicate to others what I'm doing in a, in a, in a useful way. And, and I'm, I think I'm still there in, in many ways. I mean, I, and, and it's perhaps that's a feature of philosophy that, that we sort of often get caught up in these sort of met- the methodological questions don't leave us. They rather sort of form a kind of constant background. Um, so, so I have, so I've been sort of trying to argue for contextual ethics, not always knowing what that would be. And I think that's sort of continuously evolving. Uh, and, I, and I've sort of thought that that has to be a more descriptive kind of work, that it, it's, it's, it's a kind of work that engages empirical research, that in, engages literature. And I, I've been trying to do all those things. But, but um, this particular paper uh, came about actually as um, as a, as a simple talk uh, in a context or, uh, or in a contextual ethics workshop where I knew that people were well familiar with uh, Murdoch and Diamond, but they were not as familiar with the, with this bio, this trend of bioethics. So I, I thought about this as a kind of small diplomatic mission, but also because sort of it took me very long to find people like Hilda Lindemann and, and um, and the other sort of authors in this in this volume that are are very very interesting and sort of in many ways similar to and I was sort of struck by the fact that these strands do not always meet that they are not part of the, a shared pool of knowledge necessarily um, so that was a small it's a small intervention so of course then the paper evolved into something else mm. more <laughs> polemic uh, polemic intervention in uh, bioethics. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. It's also interesting to hear it described as um, a diplomatic mission. I like that phrasing. (laughs) Um, And I guess I would ask, so um, what would you say 
for someone who um, hasn't necessarily read the paper yet, but that you would like to entice uh, to read the paper, what are the sort of main points of interest that um, you would point out to people or that you would want people to pick up on perhaps? I suppose different kinds of readers would take home very different things. Mm -hmm. And I think the main, main point, I suppose, in this paper is to sort of the philosoph main philosophical um, substance, if we put the sort of polemic aspect aside, is, is to look at what it means to do philosophy, moral philosophy or bioethics in a way where we take starting points very seriously, where we sort of enter the philosophical question or problem with with this genuine quite open-ended curiosity where we want to know what's going on here and we really sort of take that very seriously and you have sort of two bodies of philosophical or, or bioethical work where that question is taken very seriously so to start philosophizing from the middle of things to start or start sort of reflecting ethically very much from the middle of things and to figure out one's situation. But I said, I mean, people people might approach the paper from very different angles. So for some, it might just be help them to to see that there is philosophical work that doesn't follow this sort of top-down procedure that we also see a lot of in in sort of philosophical bioethics. Um, some might come from the Murdoch Diamond side and sort of discover that oh, here's a kind of bioethics that we might be interested in. Uh, some might come come from the bioethics side and and find new resources in philosophy. Um, and I think some might also find the reflections on ethical uh, thought and the meiotic work of the philosopher or the bioethicist useful for something that they're doing themselves, either sort of practically uh, in a clinical setting or, or, or elsewhere, or theoretically to open up uh, philosophical questions. So, so I think there are many, many sort of things to take home depending on. And, and of course, also, there are many things that might be absolutely obvious to many readers and, and not so. Um, it was Murdoch who said that doing philosophy is often just looking for the opportunity to state the obvious, right? Yeah, I see. I think philosophy is often bringing together uh, different things that might be obvious, but brought together in a different way. Mm -hmm. They will, um, they will um, bring bring something new. I hope. Yeah. Actually, reading your paper. Um, caused me to reflect quite a bit on what it meant to be a bioethics teacher. Um, many people who work in bioethics end up at, at a, as an academic, that is. And sometimes also, if you're a clinical bioethicist, end up having a kind of educational role. And so your paper made me reflect quite a bit on what it means to be teaching people bioethics. And that was a really interesting thing to reflect on as well, because... To be honest, I haven't read very much about the methodology of teaching bioethics in particular. So that was an interesting thing to reflect on. Yeah, I think I think what what um, Lindemann and Fakak write about in this sort of concluding chapter to the book that I that I sort of focalize in this in this paper is 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 quite actually quite radical. I mean, I think it's it's a quite radical approach to to thinking about um, what, what bioethicists do, because it has a, it, it sort of really, I mean, I suppose many bioethicists like to think of themselves as helping people to make decisions. 
But I, I think it's they have a quite radical take on what that helping means, because it really means sort of divesting the bioethicist of things to expertise. Um, and, and really sort of taking seriously that the fact that people in the practical tasks have a lot of ethical knowledge and practical knowledge that the bioethicist does, just doesn't share. So there's kind of an exchange that there's a kind of exchange of also of information, knowledge and understanding uh, that where, where the bioethicist might be as much on the receiving side. Um, so, so I think that's really fascinating. Uh, also, also theoretically and philosophically, because of course that has, if, if we think about these sort of uh, educational situations or, or the like, supportive roles that bioethicists might have in a clinical setting, for instance, um, it's, it's easy to see that kind of practical work work as, I mean, how it, how it might, might work, but then it also has implications for what the practice of writing bioethical articles could be and, and sort of how to bring along. So you have this, you have this very sort of immersed practice uh, where you divest yourself of claims to expertise, but then you also write papers and sort of develop and teach other teachers and you sort of so, so there's the whole sort of infrastructure uh, sort of infrastructural knowledge that you still participate in, in and how those work together is very fascinating and this is just something that i touched upon very briefly at the end of the paper but but i think uh, there is a lot to think about in their approach mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. i think so and i think that actually connects into a question that i was going to ask you about um a potential challenge for writing the paper, which was about the way that you are really bringing together these two quite different fields. And I thought, I mean, I think that it's so interesting and useful to do that, but it's often fairly difficult to do that. And as you've mentioned, the paper might attract very different readers because you've kind of brought in two, I, I don't know, I don't want to call it traditions, two streams, I suppose, of intellectual work. Uh, together, so the Murdoch Diamond line that you mentioned, and then the Groningen um, approach line um, from Walker and Lindemann. So, were there challenges that you found when you were trying to bring those literatures together or into dialogue with each other? Not so much in bringing them together, but maybe of contextualizing that mm. bringing together. Mm -hmm. So, so in a way, um, I, I think there the similarities or the affinities between them are so um, massive, in a way that it's hard to see why there isn't more interaction between those. And perhaps it is because people who come from the diamond um, murder context don't necessarily go into bioethics. Uh, and um, and so they don't discover this work. And, and I know I've seen that people do refer to, to Margaret Urban Walker's work um, sometimes. And, you know, you have these um, and, and uh, but I, I, I mean, it's not obvious to me why these strengths are not conversing more in the in the current literature. And, and, and I think especially in the sort of broadly Wittgenstein context, where, for instance, um, Wittgensteinian context where Diamond's work is at home. I think a lot of energy goes into struggling with preconceptions of what moral philosophy should be. And this kind of sort of people are caught up in this sort of internal debate of, of 
showing how the, um, that their alternative is a viable alternative in, in, in moral philosophy uh, and, and some sort of obvious allies in the broader context of contemporary scholarship are just not, you know, they are not found mm. on that path. Mm. But, but I think this is, uh, this is, the connections are so, so overwhelmingly and, and uh, obvious that, and, and of course there are also actual, I think you can, if we read Hilda Lindemann, I think Wittgenstein has a quite visible role in, or at least, yeah, this, yeah, I think she, I'm not sure about what she thinks about Wittgenstein, but, but he does have a, a role in. Mm -hmm. So there are sort of common, a common ancestry there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I wanted to ask you an, a final question. This is kind of about something that you mentioned a, a few minutes ago and something that you mentioned in the paper and that I wanted to ask you more about, which is the idea of starting our ethics in the middle of things. I wonder if you can just expand on that for a minute. Right. In, in moral philosophy, there's a sort of long tradition of trying to find the perfect theory that would sort of solve all our moral quandaries. Um, of course, that's a caricature picture of moral philosophy, but, but, but in, in that context, with that sort of guiding ideal of finding a moral theory, the idea that that maybe we just look at what we have first rather than what 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 it what ought to be or like this sort of finding sort of structured structured um, idea what 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 it should be like that what we have is often very rich of resources for for many um, many of our ways forward and uh, that we often lose many of those resources when we try so it's because because theory is all the normative theory is often about simplifying. Um, and what if we don't go that way? What if we, we rather look at what we have and look at the sort of complex resources we have in, at our sort of disposal in our everyday lives? Um, and that I think that is uh, doing philosophy from the middle of things, um, trying to see what we have, what are our resources, what are our commitments, what are our complex everyday duties? Um, what do we believe in <laughs> um, ethically? Yeah, I think that that's a very rich field from which to sort of draw moral resources or ideas. I guess my further question would be, do we need to generalize from that or can we or should we? Well, I suppose thought is always generalizing uh, in some sense. I mean, we do we do new, do need concepts that capture something beyond the individual situations. I mean, I think thinking about situations, thinking about particularities, thinking about individual people or individual challenges is is always sort of thinking of them in relation to other things. So there is always, I mean, from the very, the very situations we are in are already full of generalizations. And, and I think it's, it makes sense to work on those generalizations in, in different ways. And I'm not in that sense a particularist. Uh, I mean, I, don't, I think particularism is, is, is uh, can of course be many things, but, but, but I, I don't think there is, um, is, is a reason to combat generalization. It's, it's just a greater sensitive, we need a great sensitivity to what generalizations can do for us in different situations mm -hmm. and and moral theory has operated often with a rather sort of 
crude um, large-scale uh, ideas of, 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 the, of what kind of, of generalizations we need. Uh, and, and, and I think those, those ideas can be and are, of course, reconsidered all the time. Yeah, great. Um, so I guess we're kind of coming towards the end of our chat. This has been so good. Um, I wonder if there's anything that we haven't covered or if you wanted to um, summarize any sort of primary takeaway message that you hope people will get from reading your paper before we wrap up. Yeah, I think I would like to point it in a direct because in in a direction where I would be going myself with, yeah. with, with my philosophical work because I I think sort of what what fascinates me about bioethics. I mean, I, I'm very much a, more a philosopher rather than a bioethicist, and, and this is very new. But what fascinates me with bioethics um, and this sort of um, approaching things uh, in questions in bioethics from the middle of things is that it's an area where life is changing where you know it, it, it touches upon areas of life where you have new technologies you have new challenges you have new so so there's a, there's a lot of novelty all the time and you're not just finding new answers to old questions but you're actually having new questions all the time um, and and it's it's a kind of area of, of, of moral thinking where we, we are challenged to think about how morality changes, how the, not just the things we have to take into account change, but how the very criteria by which we judge them change uh, and what the sort of dynamics of that change uh, are like and how we might want to sort of think about them and, and, and maybe sometimes interfere with them. Um, so, so I think sort of this much of my interest in bioethics sort of points in the direction of a sort of more ambitious theoretical articulation of moral moral change. Very interesting. Well, I'll definitely be um, keeping an eye out for that because I will be very keen to read about it. Thank you so much for joining me, Nora. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of FabGab. You can find the paper that we've discussed linked in this episode's notes, along with a full transcript of this episode. FabGab is hosted by me, Catherine McKay, and produced by Madeline Goldberger. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever else you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye.